welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hey guys, we have an amazing privilege. Uh, Katie Sanders is going to be teaching today, and she is someone who has this passion for the local church. She's an associate pastor at Upper Room. She's been with them for uh, what, six years, right? And it's just, she's been here before, and she's she just is such a communicator and someone who loves people. And so uh, more than anything, I'm just, I'm just excited to see what God's going to speak through her today. So why don't you welcome Katie Sanders with me? Well, I am very thankful to be here this morning, um, and I say that with all sincerity. It's, it's good for my soul to be in this place. Um, I don't think it's, you're supposed to be the guest teacher and weeping in the song <laughs> before you get up to teach. So, um, And then I awkwardly spilled coffee on Andrew over here, and so I'm sorry about that. And it's, just, it's a great start to the day, right? <laughs> so well, I'm, I am thankful to be here this morning, and um, you guys are a part of a series right now called Eat This Book, which I have to say is a really just fantastic undertaking and the the journey you guys will take as a community I think will be incredible and it looks like it's going to take you about 40 weeks which I applaud you for that that is courageous and wonderful and I just love that your community is on this journey um I actually picked up I don't know if you guys are like are a nerd like me but I love resources I found this bible getting ready for today it's the chronological life application study bible it weighs like 50 pounds It was a really good deal on Amazon, and it actually goes through the Bible chronologically and has all kinds of extras, and I was just eating it up, literally, eat this book, um, as I got ready for today. So if you love resources, I would just love to point you in that direction. Um, But I think what's most amazing about this particular series that you're in is that the reality is this is our story, and this is about us. And the people that we are reading about, this is our family. And last week, Paul brought us through the story of the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And he asked this really important question. He said, where is God? And then he talked about God being in you and in me. And he is with us. And a few things have happened from where he left off last Sunday to where we're going to pick up the story today. The Israelites have spent about a year at Mount Sinai. They received all kinds of laws about how they should live and how they should worship. They built the tabernacle, which many of you might know is, the, is this mobile, move, moving place of worship. And inside the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant, which holds the stone cab- tablets, the Ten Commandments. And in their journey through the wilderness, God has provided for them at every turn, at every step of the way. And there's this beautiful um, metaphor that actually is literal um, from Numbers um, that I think just captures how God is caring for his people. Many of you probably um, have heard the phrase, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But this is where it comes from in Numbers 9, um, starting in verse 15. On the day of this tabernacle, on the, on the day, sorry, <laughs> I did all my stuff in New Living Translation. I'm going NIV for you guys. So, on the day of the tabernacle, the tent of testimony was set up. The cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from the, above the tent, the Israelites set out. Wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remain, remained in camp. And there's this beautiful sense that God is among them. 
And when we pick up the story this morning, it's been about two years since the Israelites left Egypt, and they finally have left Mount Sinai and to head into the wilderness of Paran, and they're on their way toward the promised land. We're reminded of the purpose of this journey back in Exodus before they escaped from Egypt. Sorry, you're going to have to... <laughs> I've got to get my sword drills out. Here we go. <laughs> How fast can I look up my verses? Um, but back in, back in Egypt, this is what um, God says before they depart, starting in chapter 6, verse 5. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And I will bring you from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am, I am the Lord your God who brought you from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So two years later, Moses reminds us in Numbers 10 that we're on our way to the place that the Lord has promised. The Lord has promised wonderful blessings for Israel. So this is the point of the journey. The point is getting to the promised land simply because God wants to bless them. I thought a little geography might be helpful. I don't know if you guys love this stuff, but (laughs) I had some fun on Google trying to do all this. But I'm going to start with ancient Israel. So this first map is just ancient Israel, and you can see toward the green, that's Egypt. Um, The next slide shows where they actually started. That's where the journey began. That's where they were slaves. That's where, um, you know, Moses became the leader and they got out of Egypt. And then they headed down the next slide, you'll see, to Mount Sinai. Down, scholars believe there's been some debate on the actual location, but most people agree it's, it's probably right there. So then they're at Mount Sinai. And their final destination, so next slide, is up there. That's Canaan. That's the promised land. Now, you might wonder why they didn't just travel. If you can see, it's kind of small writing, but there's this little line at the very top, right below the Mediterranean, called the Way of the Sea, right? So you can see it kind of crosses from Egypt over to Canaan. And you might wonder why they didn't travel this way. Well, Exodus 13... Sorry, sorry. (laughs) I'm going to say this every time. I'm going to apologize every time. Um, Exodus 13, starting in verse 17, says, When Pharaoh let the people go... God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though the way was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. There's a purpose behind why God is doing what he's doing. One of my favorite authors and teachers is John Orberg. He's at a church in California, and he writes this. This road because it was heavily used and very strategic, was quite heavily fortified. And particularly, the Egyptians had a large military presence there. And God knew the hearts of these people, the Israelites. He knew that they were quite frightened and timid and did not have much faith. He knew that if they ran into much opposition, they would turn around and go back to Egypt to be slaves again. Where they were going was not nearly as important as the kind of people they were becoming along the way. Having a land flowing with milk and honey was not nearly as important as having a heart flowing with love and justice and courage and faith. So we learn in Deuteronomy 1 
um, that the journey from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land would normally take 11 days. Let's do the next slide. 11 days. That's not too bad. I mean, that's, that's a, I mean, if you were with your kids in the car, that's a pretty serious road trip. But 11 days through the land. Um, and so it would have looked something like this. But we also learn that an 11-day journey ends up taking them 40 years. 40 years. And maybe it looked like this. So <laughs> I, I took a couple of liberties with my squiggles. But um, something like that is what their journey ended up looking like. And maybe it should have been a little more going in circles for a long time. Why? Why would a journey that on paper took, should take 11 days ended up taking them 40 years? Well, today we're going to take a closer look at how this came to be. So follow along with me. We're going to read from um, Numbers 13. And I'm just going to read a couple selected passages. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So the Lord commanded Moses, so as the Lord's command, Moses sent them out to the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So these scouts, these 12 scouts, go out and they travel to Canaan. It's a round trip of about 500 miles. And they bring back grapes and pomegranates and figs. And the grapes are so big that it takes two men to literally carry them between a pole. That's some serious grapes. So I did find some funny pictures, actually, of cartoon strong men carrying the grapes. So, um, And then we'll keep reading in Numbers 13, starting in verse 27. This is the report that they gave Moses. So they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's the fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, the Ebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So you can imagine what happens next. In Numbers 14, you read that the night, that night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? 
And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, protests and complaints are not a new thing for the Israelites, and you might know this. They complain about their hardships. They complain about not having water. They complain about not having meat. They complain about being stuck in the wilderness. They complain about Moses and Aaron's leadership. And now they complain, and this is what it said. That I, I'm sorry, I kept reading. Sorry, my note. <laughs> I apologize. My scripture's all wonky. They complained and said, why would God take us here? Why would God lead us? into this place to have us die in battle. Our wives and our little ones would be carried off as plunder. And they wanted to choose a new leader. And some of you knows how, know how the story goes from here. The people of Israel choose not to go. They actually talk about stoning, yes, yeah, stoning Joshua and Caleb, the two of the 12 spies who brought back positive reports, who thought they could enter the land. And they change their mind and choose, they actually change their mind. So first they say no, and then they change their mind and choose to go without God, and, they, and their enemies actually chase them back. And what's the result of this unbelief and this disobedience? Well, first we know that God, God forgives them. He does. But he also declares that the current generation of Israel would never live to see the promised land. Joshua and Caleb would be the only ones. And God says, you said your children would be carried off as plunder. You said your children would would not live to see this land, well, guess what? I'm going to bring all of your children safely into the land. And God says, you'll also, you'll also wander in the wilderness for 40 years, a year for each day that the men explore the land. So when Micah had talked to me about this, this series and where I'd be teaching and I read it, I was like, oh, awesome. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> this is a great story to teach on. Can I, can I teach on the next story? Um, because I sat in this and I thought, my first thought was, what if this had been me? What if it had been me having to go into this new land and fight these huge battles? And what would I have done? And then I started to ask, is God's punishment, I mean, I'm being honest here, is it too harsh? Um, and then I asked this question, God, what in the world do you want me to share with Awaken? And so I sat in the story for a few weeks, and I read, and I researched, and I sat in it some more, and I read some more. And then one day as I was reading, this thought became incredibly clear to me. They wept over a false belief. They wept over a false belief. And they lived into this fear that God was setting them up for defeat. So not only did they weep about this false belief, they lived into it, and they, they, they were absolutely positively convinced that God was setting them up for defeat. So in this moment, the Israelites made two choices, and I know that I make these choices in my own life, and I'm sure some of you make these choices in your life, and sometimes I think they're costly. The first choice they made was to let their fear tell them how to live. Some of us in this room t- this morning are facing very real fears, very real fears about, fears about your life or your family or your future or your health. For years, I, I, I think in, that's probably been one of my biggest themes in my journey is fear. I, I, to, to let fear tell me how to live has been, part of my, has been a huge part of my story. And for years, the biggest fear for me was this fear around getting married. And I grew up in a home where there was very unhealthy models of marriage, and in my teen and young adult years, there was a string of very unhealthy, broken relationships. 
And then I met this really great guy who happens to be sitting over here, Travis. And we started dating. And we kept dating. And then he proposed. And I said yes. And then I freaked out. And we were camping, actually, when we got engaged. And I remember that night walking to, like, the bathrooms, whatever, by myself and feeling the most terrified I had ever felt probably in my entire life. He is going to hurt me. He is going to break my heart. He could humiliate me or leave me or die. And, I mean, all these fears are just racing through my mind and my heart. And as I'm walking back from the bathroom back to our campsite, I remember hearing God whisper that, and just telling me in this voice, like, I'm not going to lead you in fear. I'm not going to lead you in fear. And you shouldn't let fear tell you how to live. I thought, okay, I'm going to marry this guy. I'm like, I'm not going to let my fear, did my fears go away? No. But I stepped into what's been three incredible years of marriage. And it reminds me of the truth from 1 John 4.18 that just says there is no fear in love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. There's no fear in love. But the Israelites let their fear tell them how to live. They were afraid of the land, their enemies, the giants, and they let fear keep them from very good things, the very good things that God had promised them. And then they made a second choice, and I know I make this choice too. They let their fear dictate their picture of God. While it's entirely true that they did not know the end of the story, and sometimes it's easy to read scripture and think, why, what was your big deal? It was going to be okay. But they didn't know the end of the story. We don't know the end of our stories. But we do know, and they did know, that God had been nothing short of consistently loving and gracious, providing for them at every turn. He delivered them from slavery, and he wanted to take them into Canaan just to bless them. But their fear said, you can't trust him. He's setting you up. He won't really come through. You can't take him at his word. This is just a trick. How many of us have ever felt those words? How many of us have ever lived those words? Annie Dillard writes in Teaching a Stone to Talk, I'm sorry I ran from you. I'm still running. Running that running from that knowledge, that I, that love, from which there is no refuge. For you only meant love and love, and I only felt fear and pain. So once in Israel, love came to us incarnate, stood in the doorway between two worlds, and we were all afraid. Isn't that true, that we are all so very afraid? Sometimes I think just saying that out loud can be really good. We are just afraid. And how do we, come, how do we become the kind of people that believe, believe that God loves us and wants good things for us? I recently came across a fantastic TED Talk. Any TED fans out there? Any? What? A couple? Um, well, his name is Simon, Simon Sinek, I think is how you say his last name, and his TED Talk is about how great leaders inspire action. Um, And he wrote a book called Start With The Why. And his premise is people don't buy things or follow you because of what you do. People buy things or follow you 
because why you do it, the why behind what you do. And he claims to have codified the world's simplest idea. So he, he has this thing called the golden circle. We'll pull it up. He said it's not anything new. I just put some circles around it. Um, and essentially what he's saying is most people start with the what. What do I need to do today? What needs to get accomplished? You know, what, what's happening here? And then they move toward the how, and then they, and that, that, that sometimes dictates the why. The Israelites were stuck with the what. They were stuck with the what that they had to do. They had to face all kinds of enemies. They had to encounter giants. They had to conquer a new land. That's what they had to do. But what if they had started with the why? Why are we on this journey? Why is God bringing us into the promised land? God loves us. God wants to bless us. God maybe just wants to give us good things. And that's why he's giving us the land. Sinek also talks about that if you, I, um, I'm kind of a nerd about brain research, but if you were to take a cross-section of the human brain, top down, you actually see different parts of the brain. I'm going to pull that right back up, sorry. You'll see different parts of the brain that correspond to these circles. So the neocortex is the what level. And in the what level, is the what level is responsible for all of our rational and analytical thought and language. So this is like the what. This is kind of where our brain operates and what needs to get done every day and how to be responsible and what makes most logical sense. And the limbic system is the how and the why. And that's where our feelings, where these ideas of trust and loyalty rule our human behavior and decision making. And it, there's no language there, which is fascinating. The language all takes place in the, um, in the neocortex. And he talks about communicating from the inside out. And it's this gut-level decision. When you start with a why and you go out, you're communicating something differently, and your convictions are coming from a different place. And he says this, and I love this. What you do simply serves as proof of what you believe. What you do simply serves as proof of what you believe. The Israelites ran away. What, what does that say about their belief? They chose not to enter into this new land because they believed they would be defeated, devoured, the Bible says. And their what shaped their why. And they believed in the end that God would abandon them. What you do simply serves as proof of what you believe. So my question even this morning is, how can we start with the why? What is the why? And I think just like the Israelites, we have to believe that God just plain loves us. He does. He wants to bless us, and we're actually his people. Yet, in the midst of this truth, our lives are filled with very real challenges, pain, fear, questions. And yet, in the midst of this truth, like the Israelites, we don't know the end of the story. But we can remember and we can recall the character, the heart, and the faithfulness of God who is carrying us along the way. When I was here at Awaken last summer, um, I spoke on when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River. And actually, it might even be next week what you cover or in the next couple weeks, but Joshua leads the people, so it's the next chapter, across this river. And they set up this memorial of 12 stones. And God instructs them to do this. And he says, do this so you remember you remember that I've been with you. You remember that I've provided for you and made a way. And I encouraged you guys to, 
to what are your stones? How are you keeping memorials to God? How are you remembering the faithfulness of God? I think about coming together this morning and singing about God's truth. That is a memorial because we were reminded in that moment of who God is and how he loves us. And we have to, we have to fill our lives with those kind of things, with those kind of remembering because we live in a very messy world and we live in a world where we are tempted to let fear tell us how to live. And we're tempted to let fear paint our picture of God. So how do we become the people who really believe that God loves us and wants, what be- wants what's best for us? I know, I know and I'm, I'm on my own journey of figuring this out. It's still a struggle, and there are days when I think I get it. Yesterday was not one of those days. Today, maybe a little more. Um, every day is a struggle with doubt and belief. Recently at Upper Room, um, my friend Stefan spoke and the upper rooms where I, where I work, um, my friend Stefan spoke on what it is like to hear from God. And he shared this story about a labyrinth that he had come across randomly one day. And there was a sign at the entrance, and the sign read something like this. This is not a maze. This is not a trick. Just take one step at a time, and you will find your way. Well, for those of you who don't know, a labyrinth is not a maze. Literally, they're different. A maze is a puzzle full of different twists and turns and false turns where we can easily get lost or you actually reach a dead end, right? A labyrinth only has one path that starts, it goes into the center, and it goes back out. And, however, it continues to wind about and twist and turns. There's actually a labyrinth. Um, I was visiting a friend um, at the Emily, or, um, at uh, Melrose Institute which is a place for people struggling with eating disorders, and they have a labyrinth in there. In their, they have a beautiful grounds, and, they, and you, I walked it, and it took me forever to walk it because you're just like back and forth and back and forth and wandering and going, and you finally get to the middle, and then you got to go back and forth and back and forth, and you finally make your way out. But sometimes I think our journey with God is like a labyrinth. And the night that Stefan spoke, I was actually wrestling with another really really significant fear in my life, and that is the decision for us to start a family. Um, I'm terrified. Um, I have hundreds of reasons why I'm totally terrified to bring a child into this world. I can assure you that many of them are very irrational, <laughs> and some of them are, are very real. Um, but hearing those words at night, this is not a maze. This is not a trick. Something just clicked in my soul in such a way that it changed me. And do I still have fears about becoming a mom? Absolutely. But will I take it one day at a time? Absolutely. One step at a time. To journey with God, trusting that I'm not only being led by a gracious and loving God, but I'm being held by a gracious and loving God at the same time. So the Israelites got stuck with this notion, this false belief, this false belief that God was setting them up for defeat. The fear said, you can't trust him. He's setting you up. He won't really come through. You can't take him at his word. This is just a trick. And because they lived into that belief, they missed out on what was promised to them. And I find myself wanting to whisper, wanting to whisper to the Israelites, this is not a trick. This is not a maze. This is not a trick. And so I ask you today, what is your notion? What is your false belief? And I find myself awake in community wanting to whisper to you too, this is not a maze. This 
is not a trick. God is for you. God is on your side. God is is surrounding you and holding you up. How can we let the faithfulness and goodness of God paint our picture of God and not fear? Letting the faithfulness and goodness of God paint the picture and not fear. And our challenge always is to journey with him, to wrestle it out, to ask those hard questions, to go to him with what doesn't make sense, and to just confess the fear because it's real and it's in all of us. And sometimes all we can do is take it one day at a time, one step at a time, fighting to trust that a gracious and loving God is not only leading you, but he's holding you in the palm of his hand. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. In the midst of sometimes it being confusing and big and foreign to us, God, we thank you for your word because it really does remind us of who you are and how you love us. And God, how you want to give us good things and how you want to bless us and care for us and be our God and we can be your people. So God, I pray this morning that wherever we're at, God, whatever fears we're facing, whatever fears we're chasing down, God, that you would allow us to choose you and to choose the truth of who you are and not let fear get in the way and not let fear paint our picture of who you are and who you will always be. So God, I pray grace and peace over this community this morning, God. May you be in our stories. May you be in our days. May you continue to lead the way. In Christ's name, amen. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.